Welcome to the One Player Podcast. I'm your host, Albert, and this is Episode 4, now in high-quality audio. So yeah, I recorded the last episode the day before Father's Day, or finished recording it then. Published it on Father's Day, and later that evening, my wife gave me this cool new USB mic as a Father's Day present. So here I am, recording with it, trying it out for the first time. Sounds great, I think. Thank you very much for my present, Cheeky. So this episode, I'm talking about games designed for one or more player that are not cooperative. First, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give an overview of the Harvest Trilogy by Uwe Rosenberg. Those are Agricola, Le Havre, and At the Gates of Loyang. Then I'm going to give a review of Luna, published by Z-Man Games, and designed by Stefan Feld. So, on with the show. So let me start by saying that I tend not to record these shows all at one sitting. For example, the introduction was done on Father's Day a week ago today. It's taken me a week to get this part done, in part because we took a little family vacation, but also because it's been hard to talk about the Harvest Trilogy since I don't own La Havre and never played it. I've spent a lot of time reading about it and researching it, so hopefully this works out alright. The first game in the Harvest Trilogy is Agricola. It was published in 2007. When it first came out, there was a lot of buzz about this game, and it was really popular. It immediately went to the top of the charts and took over rank number one from Puerto Rico on Board Game Geek. The subject is 7th Century Farming. The second game in the series, in the trilogy, is La Havre. It was published in 2008 and has to do with the shipping and industrialization. I think it's set in the 19th slash 20th century. It starts with wooden ships and ends with uh, steel ships. So it's overlapping that period. Third game was At the Gates of Loyang, published in 2010. It deals with farming and selling vegetables in ancient China, set about 2,000 years ago. I'm not planning to go into a lot of detail about how the rules work and all that, but let me talk about the mechanics here. First, in Agricola, it's a worker placement game. That means uh, each turn you're placing your farmers on the activity they're going to do. If they're going to hunt for food or maybe they're going to get some livestock, get some supplies like reeds or wheat. The game has a player board. In it, you have your, your house where your farmers live, your fields, and your bonds and space for animals that you raise. The game also has a hand of cards. At the beginning, you're, you're dealt two sets of seven cards. One are minor improvements and one are occupations. The game has a few hundred cards, so there's a lot of opportunity for a variety from one game to the next. The trilogy is called a, the Harvest Trilogy for a reason. In Agricola, at the end of each round, which lands lasts anywhere from four to one turns, depending on which round you're on, you're going to harvest resources. If you have fields and you've planted wheat or vegetables on your field, you'll be able to harvest some and gr- and have extra resources. If you've raised any animals and you have at least two of any type, there's three types in the game, but if you have two of any type, you will get a third one, or one more. I said it's a worker placement game, and so each turn you're going to be placing your farmers, your workers, on spaces, and they're basically going to be either making your farm bigger 
making it more efficient or getting more resources you start with two farmers but if they have babies you could have up to five total by the end of the game however you have to feed all your farmers at the end of each turn if you're having trouble finding enough food you may not want to have more farmers even though they would potentially make it more possible for you to to get all that stuff you need done faster okay Le Havre is also a worker placement game in this one you start with one worker and I guess you get more you know honestly I didn't come across in the rules how you earn more workers but the game brings up to five per player I'm guessing it's in the cards I might be wrong the game also has speculation and you're gonna be buying resources and and converting them to other types of resources with buildings hoping to that they'll be more valuable later on and they might be valuable because you're planning on owning certain buildings that will use those or maybe because other players are going to want them and just having them makes them more valuable or actually them not having them makes them valuable harvesting in Havre happens at the end of each round also however in this one the rounds happen I think every seven turns and in the harvest any resource you have you're going to get one more of so it's slightly different I mentioned that this game has cards the cards are really central part of the game taking actions is done by placing one of your workers on a card which is basically a building or a ship and each each building will convert resources into other stuff and there might be costs going in so there's a lot of explanation in the cards how they work now not all buildings are always available at the start of the game the building cards are shuffled and set up in three piles and you could only ever buy the top building in any pile you could see all the cards in each pile so you know what's underneath and that effect might affect uh, what buildings you want to buy and which pile you might want to go to at, at a given time at the gates of Luyang is very different in that it's not a worker placement game at all it's an action selection game each turn you can do as many actions as you want to or can afford to do Regard, you don't have to worry about being limited by how many people you have to place on these actions the game also has card drafting sort of card drafting however that only applies, applies to the multiplayer game in the solitaire game you're drawing cards from a tableau that's laid on the table so you can see what's available for this turn and the next turn and which cards you take this turn effect will be what will be available next turn it ends up making the game more tactical in at the gates of Luoyang harvesting happens at the beginning of each turn you have a number of fields in front of you these fields will have vegetables that you've planted on them each turn you take one vegetable from the field until it's empty and then discard that field there's one field that's your private field which you started the game with and has nine spaces once you've harvested from it nine times that's the last round of the game. The main goal in this game is to sell vegetables to make money which you could then use to to move along the path of prosperity which is basically your victory points. All three games have a path to victory that is vaguely similar. Um, you're basically using your actions to to get more victory points to win the game. In Agricola you, you get victory points from having farms workers and resources so your actions are going to basically grow all three things and you have to keep a balance because any ones that you're missing you're going to get negative points in Le Havre your victory points 
are your value. So you're basically just trying to buy and sell anything to ultimately get you the most money. I believe the resources have different values. So what you buy and sell will affect at what rate you can grow your your wealth. As I mentioned in At the Gates of Luoyang, your goal is to go up a path of prosperity. You do that by spending cash to go up. The first space you go up each turn costs you one wealth. After that, the the cost is equal to the the number on the space you're moving to, which increases by one each space. Basically, you end up wanting to go up early in the game while it's still cheap, but you need to balance that with uh, saving your money to grow your business faster. So at the end game, you could go up that path much faster. All right, so each of these games is one player friendly out of the box. I think that's because they're generally speaking multiplayer solitaire, as I've mentioned before. Funnily enough, the the more complex the game is, the fewer tweaks there are to the rule to make it a one player game. In Agricola, you're basically playing a campaign game. You you'll play one game and your goal is to get either fifty five or sixty points, I think. If you succeed, you keep one card and you play a new game and now your score has to be i think something like 7 points higher if you succeed again then you keep a second card for the you keep the card you had already plus one more and you play a third game and again your score has to be 7 higher and you keep doing this until you've played all 7 games and can hopefully make it all the way to the end with a uh, seven cards you've chosen to keep i've played this a few times and i have not managed to make it i think past the second phase of the second game La Havre doesn't actually tell you how the solitaire game works. The box says it's for one to four players. However, the the for indeed in the game, the the only thing the rule book says is the winner is the person with the highest score. It doesn't say how to handle that when you're playing solitaire. I assume what you're doing is trying to beat a pre- your previous scores. You always just play and see how high a score you can get. Now there are some uh, rules by solo play on Board Game Geek for La Havre that are different than what comes with the game and are supposed to be pretty good. I didn't look at those at all. I have no idea what it's like. I mentioned in At the Gates of Luoyang there is a, a tableau of cards for the solitaire game. The multiplayer game has a few differences from the solitaire game. The biggest is in the multiplayer game you draft cards to, to see what cards you get to play each turn. Because you're the only player in a solitaire game that's just not going to work so well. So instead of drafting the cards you laid on a table, and you have to choose which one out of six cards you're going to play that turn, you only get to play two out of the six. Not only do you get to pick the two you like, but the the ones you pick are going to affect what's going to be available next turn. So the choice becomes a little tougher. Other than that, the goal is just to get as high a score as you can each game. The range of scoring in three games is also very different. In At the Gates of Luoyang, you're looking for 17 or 18 as a great score. In Agricola, I think in the first game in the campaign, you're looking around 60. And in Lahav, I believe it's a few hundred points. The length of the three games seem to be comparable. I guess with the exception of in Agricola, if you're playing a whole campaign as opposed to just one game. Um, but I think per game the length is between 30 and 60 minutes depending on how many how much you've played the game and how comfortable you are playing a, a game. So each of the games has a different level of randomness. In Agricola you start with uh, 14 cards 
seven minor improvements and the other seven are occupations. The cards you start with are going to affect what sort of path you want to take in the game. The game also has some hidden information which adds to the randomness. And uh, basically, each turn of the game there is one action card you're going to flip over and see what it is. So the actions that are available each turn of the game are different from game to game. There is some control in that is in that you shuffle them bet- within one round. So the first round is four turns. Those four actions are going to be shuffled somewhere in there, and you know it's going to come up at that point somewhere in those first four turns. Besides those two things, everything else is going to be determined by your actions. In Lahav, the randomness is dealt with a. Uh, the building cards. At the beginning of the game you shuffle those cards and you're gonna create three piles with the cards and since you can only draw from the top of each pile that that randomness will affect how you play the game. There's also special building tiles. I think the deck brings 36, the game brings 36 but you only play with six of them each turn and those are drawn randomly and upside down, placed on the table upside down until you draw those cards. Also in the game there are supply tiles. There are seven of them and you're going to go through them in order each round, one per turn. At the beginning of the game they're shuffled and placed down so at, at first you don't know what they are but after that first round you know exactly what all seven are going to be every round thereafter. In At the Gates of Luoyang you're at the, you start the game with a deck of eight field cards. There are two each of a size three, a size four, five, and six field and that's the number of vegetables that field will hold the smaller fields are the only ones able to hold the more expensive and valuable vegetables that deck is shuffled up so that you have a set of three four five six shuffled and then another set of three four five six shuffled and laid on top of that the game also has a deck of about 80 cards or so each turn you're going to shuffle the cards and place them in the tableau at the bottom of the tableau and then you're going to draw two cards from the top of the tableau and discard the other four from the top. And then those will be shuffled back into the deck for next turn. So there's a lot of random dessert, not having any idea what will be available from turn to turn. So that's it for the three games. I don't have a, a strong opinion as to which is best, which is worse. I've played Agricola Solitaire a few times. I liked it well enough. I like having that deck of minor improvements in profession in Agricola. It's fun to see how they can, how your deck can impact each game. In at the gates of Luoyang, I really like how the tableau works. I think that makes the game more tactical, as I said earlier, and it makes it a lot of fun. As I also said, I haven't played Lahav, so I really don't have an opinion on that. I will say that I've, after having researched a game and read through the rules and looked at the artwork on it, I really want to get this game. So, if you've been interested in getting any one of these games, hopefully this will give you more in a, more of an idea which one you might want to try out. Uh, finally, I should say the price for all three games is roughly 60 to $70 retail. So finally, I'm talking about Luna. The game was published in 2010 by Z-Man Games and Hall Games in Germany. The game was designed by Stefan Feld... And the artwork is by Clemens Franz and Andreas Vesch. The theme of Luna is Druidic. Luna is the title of the spiritual leader of the moon cult. And her reign is about to end. Each of the players controls an order trying to 
get their priestess to be the, the next chief. I think the game looks really cool. The board is a puzzle board. Basically, that means it comes in five pieces and you have to put it together like a puzzle. And then there's also seven islands that are placed around the board. These are all cardboard cutouts. You get a bunch of wooden meeples and temples and a couple round counters, one per player. There's also little stand-up figures that are, represent the moon priestess, an architect, and a couple other characters that come into play. The game is designed for one through four players, but when you're playing the solitaire version, you're playing against a, a fake opponent. So you're playing a, a modified two-player version of the game. However, the changes are pretty small. So I said this is a worker placement game. You're going to start the game with eight workers and one temple in play. You're going to place the workers in pairs on islands. So you're going to have four islands with workers and then you're going to place a temple on one of the other islands. So five out of the seven islands will have some of your pieces on it. Now I set it to action selection. The actions are determined by the islands. Each island has a temple on it which when you use the workers basically give you a counter and that counter lets you do different things and there's other actions you could take which don't use the counters um, the thing is you always need two workers pretty much for any action you're going to do when you do an action you basically take those workers and take them off the island and place them next to the island to show that they're done at the end of your turn any workers that are off the island swim back and you put them on the island for that next round I should start using the correct terminology here the workers are called novices. They sort of look like druids or monks. So I said that the action you do on each island is to basically get a, a counter. Here's what the counters do. One of them lets you play it instead of a druid, so you only need one druid for an action when you use that counter. The next one lets you is a ship, will let you move work novices that haven't been used yet to another island, so you could use them somewhere else. Next counter is a wave, which lets you move used workers to a different island where they're also already used, but they'll be available next turn. Then there's a, a gold counter, which I'll get into later. You could use that when you start moving folks into the temple, which I haven't mentioned at all yet. There is a book counter, which again has to do with the temple. And there is an herb counter which is used to replenish your workers and or novices and let you put your novices back on the island to use again. Now it only lets you move up to two novices and one island so you can't refresh everybody and use them over and over. The final island has the shrine counter. The shrine counter you could use, if you have that, you could use it to build a shrine on one of the islands if it has the architect. And he, he's one of the little stand-up figures, and he'll move around from island to island every turn. What the shrine does is, if you have a shrine on an island, when you use its action, you only have to have one novice. It basically acts as a replacement novice. So I still haven't talked about that puzzle board that sits in the middle of the table and how you get victory points. The puzzle board has a temple that's in the middle. There are four sets of tiles that have seven hexes on them. At the start of the game, you're going to pick two of the four randomly and place them in that board in an inlay. That will be determined randomly, so each turn you will, or each game you'll have a different setup. 
I said each tile has seven hexes on it, and then those hexes are the same images that are in the seven islands and counters that are around the board. And each of the tiles, the layout is different. Each of the tiles brings seven matching discs with the same symbols as the tiles in the islands. These are going to be laid around the board, all upset one each per player that will be placed on the temple in its space with one novice. I've already mentioned there's seven discs per player and the solitaire game has two players so there's actually 14 discs total. I've also mentioned this game has seven turns so basically you're gonna have one set of discs available each turn. Actually there's six turns. You start with a set of discs on the board already, one in each color. So each turn Two discs are made available to use, and potentially two more if you use gold. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But if you take the discs, you take an action where you take two of your novices off an island. The island has to have the same symbol as that disc. One of the novices will go onto the disc, and the other one is inactive, swimming next to the island. Then, as another action, you can move the novice that has claimed that disc into the temple. When you do that, you'll get a number of victory points depending on the turn. On the first turn, you could get 6, and the next you could get 5, then 4, then 3, and finally the last two turns each can give you 2 points per disc. So, so you probably realize this is starting to use up your, your novices because you're putting them in the temple and they're no longer on the island. I think I already mentioned one of the actions you could take is, taking, is to take two novices off an island to recruit a third novice and then you bring a new meeple into play you have I think 10 total so you can only do that a few times it might be 12 total I don't remember exactly it is possible to get your novices back from the temple each of the discs has a number on it and they're laid out on the board so you start with the lowest numbers and as you work your way from turn to turn the numbers are getting higher if you place a novice and a disc in the temple on a hex next to novices from your opponent your opponent's novices are put on a dock next to the the big island those can then be moved to the small islands with the um, with the sailboat action or the wave action that I mentioned now when a player does place a novice next to another novice and causes that uh, that guy to go to the dock the person who took the action to place the tile, the disc on the tile, gets a victory point for each novice he displaces. So it's good to do that because you're getting victory points, but at the same time doing that gives your opponent novices back. In the solitaire game, a lot of times it doesn't matter if you give the opponent novices back, but there are cases where it can make a difference. Another way to get victory points is by moving your council of priest marker forward. I haven't mentioned this at all yet but there is a track on the board that has 10 spaces and you can use an action by moving one of your novices off the island into the water next to it to move your counter one space forward in there at the end of the game you'll get victory points depending on how far along you've moved on that track okay so there's one more way to get victory points maybe that's two ways to get victory points and one to lose points so there is a Luna figure that I've mentioned before. She's on one of the islands, and each turn she'll move around from island to island. 
whatever island she's on, at the end of the turn, whoever controls the most novices and temples on the island will get two victory points. Then there's also an apostate. You will lose victory points for for however many novices and shrines you have on whatever island he's on at the end of that turn. Okay, and finally, the other way you get points is based on the number of novices you have in the temple. Each player will get one point per novice. So I think that's it. I think I've covered all the rules to the game, or at least most of them. Okay, so what do I think about this game? I like it. It reminds me of the Harvest Trilogy games. It has that same feeling of trying to figure out your optimal move and what actions to take to get yourself the most victory points. The biggest difference is that this game is a perfect information game. You know everything up front, there's no die rolling, there's no cards to flip over during the game. Once the board is set up, you can play the whole game in your head to figure out how many points you get and decide if that's the best choice or not. If you wanted to, that'd be hard as heck to do. But you could. At first I found that frustrating or unsatisfying, I think. I did not like so much that uh, I know everything up front. I think I like a little surprise also. The game has three levels of play, or three difficulties. I've played level one and level two, and I found I could win them both every time. Granted, I've only played three times total. The third level definitely is harder, but I think if you spend enough time sitting there trying to figure out your best move, you could probably get a good score without a lot of trouble. In terms of complexity, I think it's comparable to At the Gates of Luoyang. It's not too hard, and there's not a lot of different things you have to keep track of while you're playing. I really like the artwork on the game. I like the druidic theme. It reminds me a lot of the Ultima video games from the 80s, maybe even 90s. Though all the islands look very nice and green and pleasant, I always picture them being very stormy off in the North Sea somewhere. The game is listed as about 30 minutes per player. I found my first game, I think it took me an hour and a half easily. At first, it's really confusing. There there isn't that much to do. There aren't that many actions. It's hard to figure out what you want to do. After one or two games, it gets really easy, and I think the last game did take me about half an hour. So should you buy it strictly for the solitaire play? I don't think so. But if you think you're going to be playing with friends also... Then yeah, it's worth it for solitaire play in that case. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Frackaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. Thanks for listening.